the Superb Owl Podcast. This week, our conversation centers around Aaron Kirby, former GameStop TV host and stand-up comedian. We take the time to discuss how he got into GameStop TV and how that led into his road into stand-up comedy and other shenanigans. We also dive into baseball, our love for it, our passion for the Mariners, and how they all around suck right now. Um, thank you for joining us, and I really hope you enjoy this. Superb Owl is a weekly interview podcast seeking to bring to light the importance of failure and the road to success. Again, thank you for coming on to this journey with me. I really hope you enjoy this episode. It's going to be really good. So this episode has a weird um, hum or hiss to it. Uh, not entirely sure what caused it but I'm hoping that that was rectified going forward. So my apologies, and I still think it's worth the listen. Just a forewarning. Thank you. Kirby, thank you for joining hey. me today. Uh, no problem. I know that it's, it's taken us uh, a bit to actually get our schedules in sync, but here we are. Um, so I wanted to, you know, take this time, sit down, talk. Well, not sit down because you're in Chicago and I'm in Washington State, so we'd be pretty massive if we actually did that. Uh, I'm sitting though. Oh, well, I'm I'm glad for you. Are you sitting? Are you laying? Are you laying down? What are you doing? Uh, no, I'm sitting down. I'm sitting down. My okay. desk. All right, good. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I tried You're sitting down by proxy. See, I, I tried to do the standing up thing for a while, and it just didn't. It just didn't drive for me. Like the standing desk, like you know that whole. Ooh, yeah, I love the standing desk. See, I I thought I'd like the standing desk, and then I found out that I didn't because it hurt my back. Because I would like get tired, and then I'd lean, and I'd be like, "This is, this is doing worse things for my back." Dude, and you cut your teeth in retail. You should be used to standing all the time. Yeah, I did. I did cut my teeth in retail, sadly. Way too much time in retail. But, alas, thank God those days are over. Well, Uh, here's the thing. If you would have gone back in time, you wouldn't change anything. Am I right? Am I right? (laughs) Yeah! (laughs) Yeah, call it how it is. Actually, I would change everything about retail, except for meeting you. I was about to say, you better put an X asterisk on it. I almost said exclamation point. That would have made no sense. Oh, I would have. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so again, thank you for joining me on this. I really wanted to take the time, sit down, chat about you know your journey uh, through you know your creative passions, creating podcasts, doing stand-up, doing comedy in general, and just kind of being an all-around funny guy. And I think that that, as kind of stereotypical as like a, a phrase that can be, I think it really actually describes you pretty well even from when we first started working together and and you were my boss like dare i say i think it was like 10 years ago um i mean that's just coming up is it was it 10 yeah yeah shit uh 30 man yeah oh god please don't remind me um (laughs) but i i think really what it i mean the first impression that it made on me was that you were just like kind of a carefree lackadaisical person with a lot of drive and ambition but i think a lot of times uh you know finding and kind of peeling back the onion especially with people who have done comedy is such a fascinating thing and so with building a podcast around you know the challenges uh, associated with you know kind of an artist's life and specifically within failure in that um, kind of bracket is I, I felt it would be really great to have a conversation with someone who's done stand-up with someone who's you know ingrained in a podcasting uh, uh, comedy lifestyle and just kind of you know hear some of your stories and and you know hear hopefully give people who do listen to this all four of you uh the the ability to hear like another perspective of someone who has you know gone through and i'd say accomplished a fair amount and you know faced failure and faced it uh well uh, pretty well and you know come out the other side with a i would say a fair amount of success well thank you you're welcome uh so yeah let's uh let's go ahead and jump into it hey how have you failed (laughs) I'm joking. That's not really how I want to jump into. Oh, I fail. I fail on an everyday basis. <laughs> I, think everyone does. I really do. I think everyone obviously fails on a daily basis. But uh, kind of, why don't you start out? Give us a little background uh, of you know kind of who you are, 
what you would say that you do and kind of your creative process through the years of like where you started and you know like where you've ended up oh man overview uh to try to make it as short as possible i grew up very creative i wrote uh i did theater i did sports as well uh, but I was never any good at any of them, but I loved sports, but I was just terrible at them. Uh, <clears throat> I started uh, doing like some commercial acting when I was a younger and then I kind of just I morphed into sports. Then I left school and I started doing broadcasting through GameStop TV uh, and I kind of just I would say stumbled into that. And then that kind of sparked the idea because the thing with me is I always hated everyone I was around, which is weird to say, but like, like I hated the people I played on sports teams with and I hated the people I did theater with. So I never really felt like I had a home. So kind of when I, after high school, I was able to find my niche in this broadcasting and then that opened the door for stand-up comedy and then stand-up comedy opened up the door for like podcasting and whatnot. So that's kind of a brief overview of where, where I'm at now. And, uh, yeah, creative process wise, I mean, that's, that's kind of a hard thing to just jump into, but it kind of ties into, I guess your podcast because, uh, my process is kind of built around failure. It's built around seeing what doesn't work and going from there. Yeah. And that's honestly a, a embracing the failure. That's right. the best way to say. It. Right. And that's the biggest reason why I wanted to have you on, because I, I, I think I mean, even in our in our time working together, I, I noticed that like you're the one who instilled in me and I still use this quote daily. I actually used it today is that I'm not lazy. I'm just motivated to do nothing. So I just work my ass off and like want to do nothing. So I work really hard to make sure that I can do nothing. And it's funny because I think that in and not in a negative way, but I've seen that with like just the way that you you like kind of um, take an approach to things. And so I kind of wanted to hear uh, like more about, you know, I, I guess how I think the, the best place to start would be GameStop TV specifically, uh, kind of how you got into that in a brief way, and then especially the process from going from GameStop TV to stand-up comedy, and then kind of the stand-up comedy to to podcasting, because I think that that's a really fascinating um, arc to go through. Yeah, well, so how I got, sta- uh, not stand-up, uh, GameStop TV, uh, it was interesting. There was when I was working at GameStop, I was clearly working at GameStop as a store manager and they wanted to do this contest where uh, you would submit a tape and you'd go through all these auditions and the winner will have gotten a chance to be or not will will go to be on GameStop TV for one episode. So I made this video, which I wish I could know how to find the video that I made because I, I'm not sure how many people, but there was like 4,300 store managers at GameStop at the time. So you, you'd think at least 500 or a thousand of them threw in a tape. Uh, they called me and they sent me down to Dallas and then I recorded in front of a camera and then they did the GameStop managers conference. I made the top five. So then the top five, it was voted on. And then there was a tie, I guess, or it was too close to call. It was me and some other guy named Ray, if I remember correctly. And then uh, I just started doing GameStop TV and what became a chance to do one episode where I filmed in front of the camera, they decided instead of having me film in front of a camera because I fidget too much, they were like, we should send him to cover things that are happening. So like E3s and Comic Cons and video game awards and terrible Call of Duty tournaments that were no fun because you had just had to interview gamers, which was just terrible at that time. I feel like gamers have gone, gotten way better since then, but this was about 10 years ago. And uh, that sparked the love for comedy for me because when it stopped, like I didn't really have a creative outlet, right? Because like they just handed me a microphone and told me to go. And I didn't have really any experience in broadcasting or interviewing or anything like that. Really? So, especially in interviewing. I remember our interview. They were bad, man. Yeah. <laughs> I would have loved, like, right now, you give me that gig right now, and I think I could produce some really, really great stuff. Oh, yeah. but No doubt. But, yeah, no, no. Literally, my first assignment they gave me was, I'm at the Video Game Awards in L.A. I check into my hotel. I meet the producers of this firm. It's like CRM something. And they were like, hey, so they gave you all the notes, right? And I was like, no, what notes are you talking about? 
So they gave me this stack of papers about people who are going to be on the video game awards. And they're like, it's going to be an hour and a half. And then you're going to be on the red carpet. And they just gave me a microphone. <laughs> and they were just like, go do whatever you need to do. So it was just improv the entire time. There was no game plan. There was nothing. I was not set up to succeed at all. And I don't think I really did succeed, uh, especially during that one. But I think over time it got better. So what are you going to do? But eventually uh, with GameStop, I wanted to leave GameStop, but I didn't want to leave the broadcasting position. So I was in a spot where I was like, well, what do I do? Because the only reason I'm staying at this company is so I could do the broadcasting. So then that's what made me start looking into stand-up comedy and then starting stand-up comedy. And with stand-up comedy, it pretty much was the same thing, really. And I think that was very different than most broadcasting gigs is because people were kind of thrown to a script, which they tried to do and I didn't excel. So they just let me do whatever I wanted, which eventually worked, but didn't for most of the time, which I think is another way to explain my stand-up comedy <laughs> because it didn't work, but eventually it did uh, because you just fail and you just fail and fail and fail and you try to figure out what works and you say the same jokes and you say them in different ways. Yeah, and so like, okay, so kind of backing up, it, when you initially got there in... Did you, so you, you got to the hotel room, and, and I know I'm backing up a bit, but I think it's a, no it's a critical point, is you got to the hotel room, you said, they said, did you get the notes, and you said, what notes, and they were like, here's a stack of papers, and were you basically like, oh, fuck, and then you went and obviously yeah. did it, after that, did you think that you failed, or were you like, given the circumstances and the situation that I was, I was put in, I feel like I came, uh, I, I came on top of that. Like I, I came out better than I should have. Or you, yeah. Or were you like, no, no, that, that was about as ass as it could get. No, I'll be honest with you. I was incredibly nervous. I wasn't like full panic attack mode, but when I was on the red carpet, I was like, what do we in the guy? I had a really great producer. I don't remember his name, but he was just like, he could tell the situation I was put into and he was trying to create the best segment he can, right? And with, it's going to be all edited, it's going to look good. I mean, you don't need a whole lot to make it look okay, if that makes sense. Because they can montage, 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 and cut. Like, I just need, like, one thing per each person. The one thing that I was most proud of is, like, I've never really met anyone famous before. So, like, all these other people are true professionals all around me. There's people from G4 next to me. There's people from E next to me. There's people who are used to doing this. And then there's some dopey white guy from Washington who's never done it before. Right. So all I try to do is have a conversation as much as I can. Like, what are you doing here? What are you here to promote? How did you like it? And I also didn't freak out in front of anybody. Like when I met Mark Hamill, like I met Mark Hamill like an hour into this. And I was like, this is what this is going to be like. Like, we're, like what's happening right now? Like I met Tony Hawk. I met... Fucking remember Kimbo Slice? I think he's dead now. <laughs> I met all the people from the Jersey Shore before they were famous because their uh, show debuted the week of the Video Game Awards. And I had no idea who they were, so I just made fun of them most of the time because one of the guys just had hair gel like you wouldn't believe. Yeah, and it all came out... The situation? No, no, no. That's a... situation was there. No, he was the other guy because he showed me his abs and I had... I had no idea what to do with it. <laughs> like, he was just like, they call me the situation and unbuttoned his shirt. And I was like, okay, <laughs> cool. Those are nice, man. So it was, uh, so you it was nerve wracking, but at the end I was proud of what I did just because I made it through. And I don't think I asked anything really stupid, but I tried to be as personal as I could. Like, you know, the, the band, the bravery. Yeah. That sounds familiar. So they were, it, that was like a turning point in the day for me because they were about probably 30 minutes in, they came up to me and started talking and they said they were the bravery. And I immediately was like, you guys were on MVP baseball 2005. I know that song you did. And I was like, I've played so much of that game. You guys are engraved in my head. And then it like made them laugh because it was like the weirdest pull you could do for these multi-million dollar band. You're like, Hey, remember this one thing that you don't remember? I remember it. Right. And you guys rule. And so it loosened them up. And then from there, I kind of gained confidence and went went off. Right. So I, I think one of the questions I have for you is after that whole ordeal and you're like, yeah, I feel really good about 
where I am and how I came out given the situation. Did it kind of say, was, was it something that in you that said, I kind of want to do more of this? Like, yeah, that wasn't amazing, but I could see myself definitely going down dude, this route. Dude, the challenge of it was incredible. It was so much fun and it was scary as hell. So maybe that's why it was so fun. But given the fact that I've done stuff in front of the camera before, I think made me want it more. Right. But yeah, of course. Yeah. And so after that, you you come back. Did they contact you immediately to say we're going to bring you out for more shows or were you already aware of that um, prior to the uh, to the game awards? So. I wasn't aware that I was going to keep doing it. I just thought it was for a one time show, which I did, which was the, uh, like the ads and everything that I did in the stores, like talking about strategy guides and talking about upcoming games. After I left, that's when they reached out to me about the video game awards. And I was like, well, this is kind of nuts. And then after that, they reached out to me about trying to remember when the video games were, I'm trying to think of the they're in December timeline. We're old. They're in December. Yeah. So then they reached out to me and had me do an award show. Then I did another studio thing and then I did E3 and then I did Comic-Con and it just kind of kept going. And I'm not sure if their standards were really low <laughs> or what happened, but they just kept giving me work. And it was really cool because on top of working in the store, which the worst thing ever was hearing yourself in that store while you were there doing shit that you didn't want to be doing. Uh, I forgot where I was going with that. <laughs> you were in the store doing shit you didn't want to do, but you you were saying that like it kept going. And so my question is, when did when did it start to go from, you know, I want to do this to obviously want to get out of the store and I want to, but I still want to keep doing this. And I've obviously failed, but that failure just kind of continued to push me to do better at this. At what point did you say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do stand-up comedy because, of course, that's not that hard. I'm, I'm sure you're not thinking that but you know like that's like to me that didn't seem like the most logical step it would be like oh i'm gonna go look at like maybe getting a job at a news station or getting a like or maybe going to la to see if i could like uh like go work on camera but no no kirby decided that it would be nothing but well <laughs> or was well, there oh no no there was more so i'm the the same producer I told you who was, a, who was great, I still can't remember his name, he, at one point, we were at, I think, my second Comic-Con, he brought, he just, like, talked to me privately, being like, hey, how long do you plan on doing this? And I was like, I don't know, I, I love it. And he was like, yeah, but, like, don't you want to, like, go do more with this? Because, like, this is kind of it for this project. Like, you're just going to keep doing this. And that's what made me think, be like, oh, shit, you're right, like... I've kind of like I took GameStop TV beyond where it was supposed to be for me. And then I kind of was like, this is all I can do with it. And I had like the connections I made, but there really wasn't much for me there. So that's and I already wanted to leave the store. So I actually ended up leaving GameStop and moving to L.A. for like six months. And I was trying to do acting. I was trying to do hosting and I was trying to do all this other stuff. And this was prior to stand up. When I was in L.A., I passed time by going to stand up comedy shows. And that's what made me want to do stand up comedy. And as weird of a gap as it is to like instead of going to because like growing up, I always wanted to be a sportscaster. So I didn't know how to get into that. And also I wasn't able to get my reel from that company. But that's besides the point. So I have nothing to show for any of the GameStop TV stuff I did. Without me having a script, I decided stand-up seemed like something that I could do. And I'd done some improv in the past, too, which is essentially what I was doing with the broadcasting gig. So it was closer related to the broadcasting that I was doing than you'd think, because it really was just think-on-your-feet type of stuff, since I had no script. And that's why I think I wanted to focus on stand-up as opposed to trying to get into another broadcasting gig, because I felt like I had more freedom. Because any other broadcasting gig would kind of tie you down to do what they want you to do. While stand-up is you're your own boss and you can say whatever you want and it's you figuring out what you want to do. Right. Okay. So that's kind of where the bridge came there. That honestly does make sense as the, as you break that down. Um, Ooh, I did go on stage, by the way, in L.A. Sorry to cut you off. No, no, no. Because uh, if, if you want to talk about failure, oh, <laughs> the very first time I went on stage, I... Uh, 
I went to a bringer show and the idea was a bringer show is you have to bring audience members there. And so you buy, like for instance, I pay $50. Right. They give me an unlimited amount of tickets. I sell those tickets to people, but I just moved to LA. So I didn't, so I essentially paid $50 to go on stage for the very first time, as opposed to going to an open mic, like anyone else in the world would have done. I went on stage at the main room of the comedy store for my very first time. Wait, you, you went to the, yeah, that was my first time on stage. (laughs) So how did that go? Awful, man. <laughs> My hands, for the first minute, were shaking so hard you could. It sounded like I was hitting the microphone, like on my hand. Like it was just like because my hands were shaking. That or your heart was about to just run out of your chest and be like, "Fuck it was bye." It was awful. But because of that failure, it pushed me to being like, I think I, you know, I really, I can do better than what I did. Right. And that idea is what pushed me forward. Right. So with that in particular, obviously, so did you go in with any jokes lined up or were you just like, I'm just going to wing it? I had some jokes. Okay, good. Uh, good. That that makes me at least feel a little better. I don't remember any of them. Well, that's fair. Well, I, I was. I think that it's like it's a it's a fascinating thing because I've always wanted to go do an open mic, even though I'm terrible at guitar and terrible at singing. But I feel like the only way to truly get better and to see how you're how you're doing is to go and put yourself out there, and then you can hear yourself. And right, I've recorded myself, and if I'm playing in my room by myself, I play pretty well. But as soon as I get in front of someone, I, it sounds like I'm trying to hit. Like I, I sound like an orangutan who's touched a guitar. <laughs> Well, dude, that's a that's a good analogy of how I felt while I was on stage. It was sort of like a primate who had a stick in his hand who had no idea what to do with it. Right. It was terrible. And so, one, I, I applaud you for that. Maybe not the best way to do it is to pay your way on stage, but, I mean, there's everyone. Yeah. Has their path. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Their path. Um, but so with that and obviously like that was an immediate failure was there any part of you that was like yeah i'm not doing this i'm not doing this i this is this is this is it i i I can't do stand-up like that that didn't go well or were you well yeah fluff it off or you know i I think that that's something that I, i i i like to hear about because i think the immediacy of failure is something that's really fascinating is how how does your mind react to something like that immediately like myself when I fail I mean like the very first words out of my mouth are fuck this shit I'm done and <laughs> about 10 minutes later I'm like I'll try it again um, but so my question to you is like what what was the immediacy of that so for me it was like I did kind of say fuck this I'm done because I uh, I was in LA for different reasons like I kind of did it out of I wouldn't say boredom like I've always been a fan of stand up and the idea of stand up was very appealing to me because I was in LA trying to do acting stuff and I was in LA trying to do like hosting gigs and it was just going slow and I wasn't getting any work because I'm a moron and I jumped in with zero experience and expecting me to make it big in six months which is a very 22 year old thing to do but what are you going to do and so for LA, yeah, that was it. Like I did it one more time and I did way better, but I just did it one more time and I paid again. I paid $50 again to do it, but this time I sold four tickets. So it only cost me like $10 to do it the second time. But then when I came back to Washington, that's kind of when I started like going to open mics. Cause at that time I was like, well now I like watching live standup comedy. So I'm going to go check out live standup comedy. And then I started watching open mics and then I started watching the people at the open mics around the city. And I was like, I could, you know, this is way less pressure to me than comedy store main room. Right. So that's kind of when I jumped on stage in Washington and then I did way better and I felt way more comfortable. I'm not sure if it's because I was home or if it was because I failed so hard. So Maybe I wasn't scared of anything anymore because I, you, that might be it. So low that you couldn't fail worse. There's no way. There's no way it could have gone worse or more embarrassing than it did the first time. 
<laughs> I mean, if anyone's listening, to those that are listening, all four of you, uh, it it really, I, honestly, I do think that that in some ways is the best way to go. I, I, I personally believe that sometimes the best way to fail is to fail, like, with, like, to fail like you're trying to, like, win it all. Like, go. Yeah, go down in a fucking, in flames. Yeah, because then you're like, well, it legitimately can't get any worse. And I think that there's something noble in that because really it means that like there, there's the saying that the opposite of love isn't anger it's apathy and I think that that's the same with failure I think people who fail and who who just give up and like are like well I'm just going to coast to the finish since I'm done I, I think that the people who are like well if I'm going down I'm going to go down in a way that at least people will be like, hey, remember so-and-so? They fucking sucked. But, hey, (laughs) 10 years later, someone remembers that person sucked, right? And I think that there's something somewhat noble in that. Um, So my question to you is, like, as you came back to Washington and started getting into stand-up and you really started to explore, you know, kind of what that world is and... and, you know the the adventures and challenges that come in the stand-up uh, in the comedy world. Uh, one of my questions for you is, how did your life kind of start to change, and how did you adapt to uh, doing stand-up comedy in in the same context? How did you um, kind of balance? Did you kind of just all of a sudden shift gears and give up on that other? like other desire or has that remained in the back of your head you mean like like acting and doing other stuff like that yeah like staying being on camera or you know has that has that subsided did you kind of just like all like give up on that and just like focus fully on stand-up or has that remained yeah no i mean i feel like i would always love to be on camera I think that's a place where I can shine. And with the tools that I've gained from stand-up comedy, I've done a couple projects and I've really, really enjoyed it. But it really was just a focus on stand-up comedy. And it was a, in terms of how my life changed, a, a loss of all social life. Because instead of going out you know, with my friends for happy hour, I was driving to an open mic. And I was waiting two hours to work on three minutes of material. And on the weekend, instead of going out, before I was like even getting booked, I was like going to clubs to watch shows and stuff like that and really kind of dissect them and figure out why something was funny. So it really kind of took over my out of work life. Yeah. So for you in that, do you feel like, and and this is something that I think, because I've I've heard stories from other stand-ups on other podcasts, do you feel like as you, you kind of push your social life to the side, would you would you do that again? You know, this is we we talked off recording about how you hate the idea that somebody would say that they they wouldn't change a thing. Yeah. But I don't think I would. No. Because the people I met in stand up, there's some some of the people I've met in stand up are the most amazing people I've ever met. There's a lot of bad in every profession, but like the things that I've learned in the way that it was almost like therapy for me, because with stand up, you're always looking inward. So I think you kind of think more about yourself and you're more introspective than a lot of people. So I think it actually matured me in a lot of ways because I was looking at the things I've done and the situations I've been in and I was like breaking them down as to why I did that. So I don't think I would have because I think it really helped me become the man I am. And I wouldn't be where I am right now physically. Right. If not for that, which I love where I am. (laughs) I'm glad for that. I would do things. I would do small things differently along the way for sure. Right. Right. I would have never paid some jabroni $50 to put me on stage at the fucking comedy store. I would never have done that. I bet but you like, that guy who accepted your $50 was like, this is going to be good. This is going to be great. This is going to be awesome. He didn't give a shit how bad I did. He got my money. Right. Um, okay. I, I And I can accept that. And I, I get what you're saying. And yeah, I know. Way to play right into my hand. Um, but I, I guess my question is, uh, and, and I think you actually answered it in such a way that kind of negates 
you know my my preconceived notions in it is that I, I think when I'm saying that like of course you wouldn't like keep it all the same there are things you you clearly regret I think the the place where that like kind of easily gets um, erased is in character growth and I think one of the things that I've noticed from people who have gone from not doing stand-up to going into stand-up is immense character growth and I think you're right is that it is the introspective nature of it and I think it's a really fascinating thing and my question to you is were you terrified of anything that you discovered about yourself did it scare you oh the realization of how narcissistic I was yeah yeah Oh, yeah. <laughs> totally did it. And uh, here's something you don't know. I don't think you know. I don't do stand-up anymore. I, okay, so I, I didn't know. Like, like I, 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 we haven't talked about that, but um, I put two and two together and assumed that you hadn't. But, like, I, and if it's okay with you, I would like to get into that at some point. I'd love to talk about that because that there's a lot of good stuff that you're trying to ask. Yeah. Yeah. I can answer with that. And and I'm I'm excited to get to that. My question about the narcissism, do you feel like as you discovered that, was that something where you look back on and you're like some of these like and usually narcissism really um presents itself in relationships, not only like, you know, romantic but like friendships as well. Do you feel like you look look back and you were like, Oh, that's why that friendship failed? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I never put anyone in front of me. Right, right. And it took my relationship now with my wife, who I love dearly, for to help me realize that I should. Yeah. Like I was a very, I was a very callous. Like I was, I, I, I like I'm a laid back guy. I feel like you know I had good relationships with everybody, but I was not about to do anything for anyone. No. Except for myself. And I think that that's probably in a way that we, we both like got along. Because I'm very much the same way. Through the hardship, I became very callous. And my wife's like, done the same thing. She's just like, you should care about that. Because that's what humans do. <laughs> <laughs> Your wife and I could sit down over a glass of wine and talk about that for a long time. <laughs> Right. Or your wife and my wife, not your wife and I. Yeah. So, cause she, she's just like, what? Why? Why would you say that? And I'm like, because <laughs> it's the fact. And she's like, I don't care if it's the fact. That's a, that's you don't say that. And I'm like, oh. And yeah, you have no emotion behind it. You're like, this is this. Yeah. And so, and and definitely like my wife has definitely helped me with that. And so, I think. Um, you know, I, I look back on that, so I, I just wanted to hear someone else who like understands you know, that to an extent they're a bit narcissistic. Like, how did how did it feel upon like kind of those revelations? Because I would assume those uh, assume rather that when you write, like when you were writing jokes, you were most likely alone, like doing it, like just kind of you know mm -hmm. in your own space, like. I know that this is a weird question, but something I really want to, like, I've, I've always wanted to ask a comic is when you were writing any of your jokes, did it bring you to tears? Because not because the joke was so funny, but because the, the emotion behind it, the rawness of that specific joke, what you were trying to get at for the audience was actually something where you're like, oh man, that's fucked up. I fucked up real bad. Here comes the tears. Like, you know, for me, no. But for other comedians, I'm sure that is a thing that has happened. But to play more into my narcissism, like all my comedy was about me, but it wasn't ever making me look particularly like weak, even though I do have a very long bit about how I'm physically weak. I don't think I've tried to deep delve that deep into my insecurities because that wasn't the kind of comedy I wanted to do. Gotcha. Okay. That, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so I, I think that this is kind of a good segue into, um, one, I, I know that you released an album, and I want to guess, and I'm going to take a stab here, and you can tell me I'm completely wrong, but let me guess, the release of your album probably didn't go as you planned, and did that kind of lead to your eventual leaving of doing stand-up comedy? You know, no, actually. I think I you'll be very interested dope. in this. I really loved it. I listened to it quite a few times. I thought it was hilarious. Oh, well, thank you. I'm very, I'm incredibly proud of what I put out. I had zero expectations for putting it out. It was just something where I wanted to be like, you know, this is the body of work I have done up until now. 
and I want to have that cataloged because I was proud of it. Right. And it could have, I mean, it sold well. Like I still get money every month from my album. So like, it's not a ton of money, but every once in a while, CD baby throws me like $75 and I'm like, Oh fuck yeah. <laughs> Sweet. Well, That's awesome. Yeah, and I, Again, I wasn't trying to make any inferences or anything. It was just like, I, I remember that coming out and then uh, not hearing much about your standup after that. And so that, that was me irresponsibly putting two or two together. Oh no, that's a, that's an obvious conclusion to make. I think what is interesting for me is I took this album and I put it out and then I moved to Chicago and I had to start over. And the thing with comedy is it's very difficult to build yourself. And so maybe this is my narcissism and maybe this is my ego, but to get time in Seattle wasn't hard for me. Like I was able to be like, text the guy who runs the open mic. Hey, I'm going to come by at nine you know, I, I, can you get, put me up? And so I could go there at nine, be up by nine fifteen, be done by nine twenty, hang out for maybe 10, 15 minutes and go home. Now in Chicago, no one knows me. So I was going out to open mics for a long time while I was here and I was working, but I had like for three minutes, it was like lottery open mics where they pull names out of a hat. I could go up in the first three, I could go up three hours later. So it was more me kind of valuing my time and me realizing that the same sacrifices and the same asses that I had to kiss in Seattle, I just didn't want to do again. And then to tie in with the album, like I kind of looked at it and being like, you know, I did this. Like I did something I'm very proud of. Like what more do I want to do out of this? And you couple that in with the fact that when I moved here, I saw what truly needed to be done to take the next step, which I, I, I believe I can do if I wanted to, but I saw the lifestyle of all the people who were quote unquote making it. And it's not a lifestyle I want to live. I don't want to be away from my wife. Right. I don't want, I don't want to be gone. I, I like, like when I moved here, it was just me and her. And we fell in love more than we ever had, which is super cheesy. But at the same time, I was like, why would I get on a bus and go to Shuba's and sit there for three and a half hours and maybe not even get on stage and then come home? Right. So it really was kind of like the album was almost an exclamation point to what I'd done and being like, you know what? I can, I can say I've done this now. Right. And I could say I did it at a, I'm not like a super high level. I was never on Comedy Central by any means, but I was proud of what I did. Right. I mean, you released an album. That's a lot more than a lot of people. That's impressive. Yeah. I was on TV. I'm on Sirius XM. I've been on a bunch of other stuff. Like it worked out for me and I'm proud of it. But there is no way that like my album, because I don't even know how many like downloads or listens it's ever gotten. But I know that I've made money on it and I've made way more money than I put into it. So I'm proud of that. Right. So obviously we're kind of like rolling right into that. And so I, I kind of want to unpack it more and, and, and get kind of like a little deeper into this. When did you decide to just hang it up? And was it instantaneous or was it a process of you kind of denying that you wanted to hang it up and could keep pushing it forward? Kind of like that, you know, that relationship that you have in high school that's ending, but you don't want it to end. So you keep trying to make it work, but eventually it ends on prom night and then it just goes to shit. <laughs> and make prom terrible. I have no experience with this, of course. Uh, I have. <laughs> it sounds like there's no hint of truth in what you just said. <laughs> Not announced. So um, go on. No, man. It's like I kind of just. It really was dawning on me where I saw somebody, and it was as small as I was at an open mic, and someone nudged me, and they're like, "This guy is a Just for Laughs audition." Which Just for Laughs is this? Like that's the shit in comedy. Yeah. You work for a just for last uh, audition and I watched him and it was like, huh? And then I started talking, well, cause he was fine, but I started talking to him and he's like, yeah, you should come over sometime. Me and a bunch of comics have a house together. And he lived with six other comics in Wrigleyville and he's like 35. And I was like, oh man, that is just, Oh, <laughs> like, I, was like, I don't want that life at all. So for me, it was it was very much like, I think I'm done. And then I already had a booking. So I the last time I was on stage, actually, no, the this January, I gave it 
I went on stage in June of last year at Tacoma Comedy Club. I flew back and I did a big feature spot for them there for a weekend. And then I told myself I was going to get six months off. And then January came. So I hit up a couple open mics this year and it just wasn't there anymore. I wanted a break. So I gave myself six months, jumped back into it, gave it a couple weeks and was like, you know, I just don't, I just don't feel it anymore. And I just haven't looked back. So with that, how did that go? Like, how, how was that internal conversation? And more so like from that, what are you doing to supplement that now? Like, cause obviously you're, you're, you're comedic like by nature. And so like, how do you supplement that? Cause obviously that's a, that's a, um, Ooh, I forgot the word. Uh, a, 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 a source to put out comedy. God, what the fuck? <laughs> An outlet? <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> I wanted to not help, but it was right there. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it's been a long day. Um, but yeah, so like, right, that's been your outlet to be able to say, you know, I, I, one of the things I love about comedy is that you can just go in and. You know, for the most part, depending on what your kind of quote-unquote shtick is, you can say some pretty fucked up things and get a free pass. And, like, I, and, and I'm not trying to say that in, like, a, like, you can go, like, drop, like, terrible, terrible things. I think that it's it's just, it's a place of, like, I really hate the word just because of, like, the negative connotation it's got. It's a safe space to experiment with the, um the deep dark part of who we are as humans right inside our inside our minds and so you know you've always been pretty good at that i mean like we have both sets like we have like had times in the back room of gamestop laughing at some pretty heinous fucked up things we've said to each other because it's just like you start to do that one-up thing where you're like no no this is more (laughs) this is more fucked up this is more fucked up you know like shit like that and so but that's like and and so my question is, is after you, you kind of said and you hung it up and you're, you know, what was the process internally like to, to kind of deal with that? Because that is, I mean, did you, did you mourn it? And then from there, what have you been doing to, you know, to realign that outlet? And so it's been weird. I didn't really mourn it. And I think the idea behind my ego was like I wanted to get rid of it. And so when I, the only thing I really dealt with when I stopped doing it was, is that, and this ties into what you're trying to say is I didn't want people to think that I failed, but at the same time, I didn't really give a shit if anyone did. And I don't think I failed and I'm very proud of everything I did. So like, it was just kind of like, I was super quiet about it. Like I made a really quiet exit. Like a lot of comics will like make a big proclamation that they're taking time away. And I just like, I just never said anything on Twitter, on Facebook or anything. I just stopped doing it, which was weird. And I thought about it a lot. And the thing that I actually needed to get away from was the drama of comedy. So like there was people who I would talk to back in Seattle who would like message me like you wouldn't believe what so-and-so did. And it got to a point where I was like, you got to stop texting me about this because I don't want to hear any of it. Like I'm done. Like, I personally, okay, so that's, that's something that I think is really interesting because I think that with social media nowadays and especially within comedy circles and like, uh, even within like the gaming space, cause like, that's the area that I'm like most ingrained with is that mm-hmm. comedy, uh, rather, uh, like drama is so pervasive. Like so-and-so said this, or someone gets in a shit throwing argument on the internet of all places because that goes well. Um, and it's just just like it's so toxic and you take it and like even if it doesn't affect you you're just like haha fuck that guy and then you're like wow i feel anger for something i shouldn't feel anger or i feel like this pit in my stomach and so i totally understand that like just yeah. trying to rid yourself of that drama to be like you know i'd like to be positive and not have ulcers that'd be swell yeah because it was like it'd be six months after i stopped doing comedy and someone would be like hey can you believe this person does a feature spot here and I'd be like why the fuck do I care (laughs) like like this and there were so many things I learned where I was like it almost validated my leaving because like 
stop do me stop doing comedy made me realize kind of how comedy works. And I don't want to get in the extreme details of it, but it's like seeing people have success and you look at them and you're like, oh, that's why. And seeing like there's like a there's a million Aaron Kirby's trying to do stand up comedy. So it's also like, am I really going to dig my heels in and try to that hard? And the drama in it is just so much. Yeah, no, it's and I think that's with any profession, right? Like everyone's jealous of everybody. Everybody wants the spots. You're all fighting for the same success. So there is going to be hatred and there's going to be backhandedness and there is going to be, you know, pettiness. Right. Right. So now that you've successfully rid yourself from all of that as a pure human being, what are you doing as an outlet? That was a joke, by the way. It was bad and poorly delivered, but it was a joke. I'm a beautiful soul. As a, you shut your mouth. Oh. <laughs> uh, but what are you doing as that creative outlet? How, how you know, do you reassess, reassign that? So for a while, I was, I was doing podcasts. I'm taking a little bit of a break now from the ones I produced. Uh but really for me, it was I found a job that was fulfilling for me in, in the daytime. And it's a, it's somewhat of a sales job. It has a lot to hinge on my personality. So every day I have six, seven performances a day and everything is different. And it, to me, it's oddly like stand up because you have to read your audience. You have to figure out what's important to people and what will get them most invested and in terms of what I'm doing, it's literally what they want to invest in. And, uh, yeah, it's really just a fulfilling job during the day that is taking that away. I've, I've talked with people, not on, not on this podcast yet, but, um, just, just in life. And I think that that's like one of the most like unique things. And I'm not trying to say this in a negative way, but as we get older, it's funny because people are like, oh, I abandoned my dream. And I'm like, I think about it. And I'm like, I don't think you abandoned your dream. You just figured out how to assign your dream to your job in a way that allows you to still, you know, like you're not doing quote unquote your dream job. You know, you're not working for yourself, but you're taking the skill set that applies to who you are and you're 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 using that in your daily like in your day-to-day life which is i think i think it's really cool to hear and it's 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 nice to hear on like have on this podcast as something to like kind of call out but i think that that's really cool i really do it is cool and like it's kind of funny because when i look back at the day jobs i've had like I loved, and this sounds weird, but I loved GameStop, man. I, if you can give me that job from nine to six, Monday through Friday, I would fucking be working there still. I love retail. I just don't like the things that come with it. And then I started doing standup and then I found another job that I loved. And the whole time I was doing standup, I didn't have a job that I loved. So it was easy to, for me to kind of like just move on. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there was this great comedian in Washington who actually said something to me once that has stuck with me through this whole thing was he told me that comedy is what you want to get out of it. Like it may not be you getting on the tonight show, but it's what you want out of it. And he like coming from him, he's a guy who was a standup comedian who became a comedy club owner. And now he owns like four clubs in America. That's awesome. And, and he doesn't have time for stand-up comedy, even though he loves stand-up comedy. But he was able to take his business acumen and his drive, and he was able to purchase a club, make it super successful in Washington, buy another club, buy another club. Now he has one up in Wisconsin. Like, it really is what you want out of it. So for him buying clubs, it's switched to me in my day job, you know? Yeah. No, I, I think that that's... That's a that's a kind of a good place to wrap up the conversation because I think that that kind of puts a nice bow on it all, right? Like it's a it's a great pathway of like how your artistic nature has kind of it's permeated every job you've had, which is really interesting. And I don't think a lot of people whereas like I think eventually we all get to a point where, you know, our our creative nature probably will start to influence the work that we're doing, but I, I don't think usually we get to be as lucky as to say that, you know, that creative nature is stuck with us, you know, for better or for worse through the entire process. And I know that you said that you had like a couple jobs in between GameStop and now, but 
it sounds like at least at the end like you've gotten to that point where you're you're able to kind of you know be who you are and it's a dri- driving you to success yeah really cool thank you very much yeah i mean it's i mean the whole idea that comedy is what you want out of it so is life yeah exactly and my my priorities when i moved here shifted dr- drastically from me working seven days a week doing uh stand-up comedy five nights a week and not seeing my girlfriend at the time to falling back in love with someone and now wanting to have a family yeah and now wanting to provide for that family and i still get to perform every day yeah but now i get to perform for way more money yeah. <laughs> way more money dollar dollar bills y'all and that's the yeah. end of the podcast oh <laughs> okay no 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 that's not no we gotta shit talk mariners right Oh yeah, well that 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 that's the podcast within the podcast. Welcome to Mariners Talk, where we talk about the depressing things the Mariners did today. Mariners lost today. Hey, hey, you want your optimism or your pessimism? I got optimism all up in your butt for you. I have so much of it. Injected. Well, today, of course, not the best. No. Today, the Mariners lost. They've lost two of three. Is it a four-game series? I think it's a four-game series. Is it? Let's look. Let's look at the schedule. So the Mariners this month play the Astros 10 times. Wait, in August? Yeah, well, technically nine because they played them in the last day of July. But yes, the Mariners... It's a three-game series. We play the the Blue Jays tomorrow, so it'll be nice to have Safeco's crew home crowd in. (laughs) Dude, I fucking... Oh! Why would you even say that? So <laughs> no, it's true. I hate them so much. Uh, so yeah, we got the Blue Jays for four games, then we got the Rangers, then we have the Astros for uh, four games after that, then the Athletics, then the Dodgers, and then the Astros again. So all I want is 500 from the Astros. I think that's all you can ask for. The Blue Jays suck. The Rangers suck. So we can take that. The Dodgers are very good, but they're playing, I believe, at Safeco. So that could actually, no, they're so stacked. Oh man. I was just thinking about the trades they made. Yeah. They're pretty, they're pretty huge. Yeah. The DH thing isn't going to weaken them at all, but, uh, it's a big month for us, man. And it's the closest that we tasted the playoffs in a long time. The last couple of years we've been, you know, a a game out two of the last three years, things fell apart in September last year. And the A's are just so good all of a sudden <laughs> that we thought it was like a guarantee we were going to get that wild card spot, right? Like I was, look, I'm ready to mobilize to whatever stadium I need to go to for a one-game playoff. And at this point, it looks like the Yankees. But in a perfect world, the Yankees fall out of it. And it's the A's in Seattle, which I'd much rather go to than go to Yankee Stadium in a Mariners jersey in a one-game playoff because that's nothing but dangerous. Mm-hmm. It'll be weird. I like the moves we made. I like Cameron Mabin. I thought putting down Ben Gamble was a little interesting. I thought Heredia would be the one who would go. I really would have put down Heredia. Yeah, I thought maybe there's something. It may be a switch thing or something for this certain series. He doesn't bat switch. He stopped batting as a switch hitter because he had no pop or power uh, when he was batting. Um, wait, does he bat left-handed or right-handed? No. He bats Heredia. Yeah. yeah, and when he was batting oh, left-handed, he had no pop. He was just putting it right into ground balls all the time. So Edgar was like, hey, how about you just bat right-handed? And, well, yeah, that fixed a lot. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, he was hot at the beginning of the year, but, man, he really has not done anything since the beginning of June. No, but Gamble's been doing really bad. I digress. Um, but So Gamble's splits are really telling. If I remember correctly, he just crushes righties, and or vice versa, crushes lefties and doesn't do much ag- to talk about against the other. So I don't know what's going on, but I like that we got bullpen arms because we need them. Our bullpen is very frustrating outside of Edwin Diaz because everyone's inconsistent besides him and Pazos, really. Edwin Diaz, though, man. I love me some sugar. <laughs> Dude, he's so good. I want, and I know saves is such a, like an arbitrary stat, and but at the same time, give me that fucking record. <laughs> give me that record. I want to do it. Yeah, no, I, I love Eddie, and uh, I'm really happy with... Uh, I'm oddly happy with Scott Service, aside from his weird bullpen things. He, he's done some odd things, like he'll put in pauses for one fucking batter, and I'm like, no, no, I don't know if you know this, Scott, but 
Pazos can pitch more than three pitches. I know. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, it's funny that he coddles Pazos so much, but he's like, just fucking throw up Vincent or just fucking put out Colome or Nicasio, like, and just let him fucking go. Like, he, it's like he's got a handcuff on Pazos, and I don't know why. Because I feel like if there's one person in the bullpen who's earned a little bit more, it's him. Can we talk about how amazing Marco Gonzalez is and how Dude. I just love him? Yes, we can. Marco Gonzalez is fucking ridiculous, man. Talk about winning that trade outright very, very fast. That was a trade that everyone was down on because Gonzalez was not good last year. He was hurt. I mean, he was coming back from injury, so he clearly wasn't the pitcher we thought he was going to be. But then this year, he's been unbelievable. I know. He's almost, I think, at like three war for the whole year. If we can get like a four or five war out of Marco Gonzalez, geez yeah, Louise. I see like war and I'm like, hey, it's like it's if it's a higher number, it's better. I know nothing about baseball stats. <laughs> oh, it's good. Four war is very good. Right. Four war means he should earn like 25 mil a year. Yeah, I know that Mike Trout has a career 5.1 war, which makes me hate everything because we took Dustin Ackley. <laughs> well, we can't be too mad about that. I, I can get into that draft for many other reasons, especially because the Mariners were going to have the number one pick in that draft, and they decided to – here's a fun GameStop story. They decided to sweep – I think it was the A's, and it was the only time they swept any team all year, and they swept the final series of the year, and the Nationals in the final series of the year got swept – so they got the top pick and we did not. We lost. I left work. I was so mad because that was the year Strasburg came out. Right. And that guy couldn't have been more heralded coming out of college than anyone, like any pitching prospect in like 20 years. And I just watched him. Ugh. Also, Mike Trout has more career war than Mike Piazza and Vladimir Guerrero already. So if you want to know about how valuable that guy's been in the short amount of time he's been in the majors. Yeah. Kaboom. No, I, I'm happy with the Mariners, and so long as we just, uh, I, I don't think we fight, face the L.A. Mike, Mike Trouts anymore this season, right? I think we might have another series, but I know that we're not going to go out east further ed- than anything from the from Texas, which is great because we're facing the NL West uh, for interleague play. So, like, in June, we were done going to the East Coast, which usually kicks our ass because it'll be, like, the end of the dog days of August and we'll go and play Baltimore, New York, and Red Sox all of a sudden and we'll just get fucking destroyed and go one and eight in those three series. So, we're we're staying pretty local, which is great. We're only going up and down the West Coast and then going to Texas every once in a while. Yeah. We'll see, man. It's going to be a really fun race. Uh, as of right now, we are tied for the second wild card record uh, game with the A's because the A's beat the Blue Jays. Am I supposed to be impressed by that? Uh, no, you're supposed to be mad. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, 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 were we really expecting the Blue Jays to do anything other than just get like pelted with baseballs? Yeah, they stink. Yeah, <laughs> they stink. They're terrible. But. It, I mean, the thing with Felix is going to be very interesting to see where that goes. And it's just so heartbreaking that Felix is genuinely the worst player on our team right now. Do you know, uh, do you follow soccer a lot still or no? No, I mean, not really. The World Cup did its best job uh, with the lads going as far as they did for England. Okay, so you, uh, you, you, you follow the English, like, the, the English national team. I know that much. Uh, yes. Uh, so you're aware of how... So Wayne Rooney and Felix are the same age. Uh, and Wayne Rooney is identical to how Felix is performing. But they, they have the exact same story. They both started playing at, at a like insanely high level at like 16. Mm-hmm. And their body is like done at like 31, 32. But if you shift that up like to like when the average player starts playing and then they peak out at like 35, 36, it fits the same curve. It's just they started so early. Like, they've had a full career. They're just, they just, yeah, man, they've had it. Felix is 32. Right. It's insane that he's done. Right. But at the same time, he's had a 13 year career or something like that. 
he debuted, I think, in 05, right? Yeah, yeah, he did. He debuted in 05, and he was throwing 97-mile-an-hour fastballs and 89-mile-an-hour change-ups with movement. Of course, he's like, like, that's really intensive on your arm. Yeah. And he threw 200 innings. So let's. I'm looking at this right now. From 2000... Out for Tommy John. No, and that's something I was always scared was going to happen. And at this point, I almost want him to like voluntarily do it just to see if we can get any more juice out of his arm. I don't, I don't know science. I don't know sure if you can do that. We can rebuild him. <laughs> Give him a robot arm and just put him back out there. But from 2006, so 2006, 2007, he pitched 190 innings both those years. So essentially 200, right? But not 200. Then the next one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight years, he pitched over 200 innings. He had essentially 10 years in a row of 200 innings plus. The dude's done. Yeah, it's really sad that he's done. And it sucks. It really does. And I'd love to see like, no, like a major league moment. You know, you've seen the, of course you've seen major league, right. but how the catcher who was toast as well came up big for them to get him into the playoffs. Like, man, can you picture if somehow for some way it had to be Felix pitching that one game playoff and he goes out there and throws seven innings, eight strikeouts, two hits, one walk, and then just like claps his hands and he's like, I'm done. We, I did it. Like I want arms fall off <laughs> he breaks, he tears his ucl and has to get tommy john <laughs> i mean the man gives so much to seattle and i love he's might be my favorite mariner of all time i always get into funny conversations with people about favorite mariners because like griffey was great but i think we were right at the age where like each row had more of an impact on us because griffey was already gone by the time we were like 12 you know what i mean, I mean so we were becoming like more cognitive yeah of yeah. baseball i'm always aware of griffey because of like uh ken griffey baseball on the n64 right like the greatest baseball game that ever existed uh, and like but really don't have that many memories of watching him and like to be honest i didn't really watch baseball through like high school and college i went to games when i was younger but it's not until i'm i started dating and married Alyssa that that I really got into baseball because she's like, no, no, this is a good sport, especially if you like soccer, like you love the stats in soccer. This thing, this sport is like stats, like baseball could be renamed stats, the sport, and they're not wrong. And so I really started to like get into the stats part of it. And I'm like, did you know, James Paxton had a whip of 1.07. And she's like, what the fuck does that mean? I'm like, that means his walks over innings pitch is like motherfucking low walks and hits. And she's just like, shut up, Alex. <laughs> like, okay, cool, I'll go tell Randy. Like, you created this. <laughs> you did this. <laughs> but I, and so, like, I went back and, like, I watched old games because her dad, like, recorded old games, which I'm, like, so appreciative of because I'm, like, able to, like, kind of relive these moments that I never got to do. Um, but with that being said, I, even as someone who didn't really watch the Mariners, I remember when I heard that Ichiro got traded to the Yankees, and I was like, what the actual fuck? Right? Like, <laughs> I, as someone who was, who was completely outside the stratosphere, Ichiro was an icon in Seattle. And so, uh, for me, like, that was such an interesting, like, thing. And so, like, I'm even aware of him. But, yeah, I mean, like, Griffey, to me, was always just like, yeah, he was he was super dope. Until I looked into his stats, I was like, oh, no, he wasn't just super dope. He was, he was like, the dopest. God. <laughs> <laughs> he was the goat, man. Griffey, like, and not taking away, of course, anything Griffey did, but like, I, I what you talked about was like getting passionate about something. So like, we weren't super passionate about, like, we were kids, right? Like, I was eight, being like, dingers, love them, and now I'm like 28 or 30, and I'm like, dingers, still love them, but now I love them even more, and I care about them more. Like, my football team won a Super Bowl when I was a freshman in high school. For Seahawks fans, I would totally have traded with them to win a Super Bowl when I was like 25. Right. When I was so raging and could go do whatever I want and party however I wanted to and cared so much more about the sport. Like, I don't know. And Felix to me is just, I almost thought he was going to get traded this. Like, I thought they would have been like salary dumped his ass somewhere, which I don't think they ever will do, but they could. And that's the only way out of this contract. But he's got like two more years on this contract getting paid bank. I wish they would have front loaded his contract a little bit more. 
as opposed to drawing it all out. They yeah, did. You got a really team friendly or uh, player friendly deal out of that one. Seven years, one seventy five, signed in twenty thirteen. Why don't you just give him like forty mil a year for two years <laughs> in the front of that? Right. Because in twenty thirteen he cranked out. Let's take a look at this. Didn't he a six like war season. Twenty one wins or some shit like that. Is that the year he won the Cy Young? That was the year he. That was the year after he won the Cy Young. Ah uh, yes. Yeah, but the year he won the Cy Young, he only won thirteen games. In two thousand fifteen, he won eighteen. Right. Yeah. Two thousand two thousand fifteen was the year that we Felix the fuck out of him, and he he won eighteen games, but at the same time he like yeah that was that was still he could have won like twenty eight. Yeah. yeah, that's like what uh, Jacob Degrom's going through in uh my my brother in law's a Mets fan, and so every time I'm just like, hey, how about the Mets? And then he just like looks at me like he's just like I'm standing by nights, Alex, and I'm like, I'll take my chances. Mets can throw like a Met, so I'll just like dodge it or some shit. <laughs> yeah, you just hope he doesn't throw like Degrom or Syndergaard. Yeah, yeah, they're. Uh... I feel bad for Mets fans. Man, and they started like nine and one this year. They had an eleven and one start. <laughs> Start the Mets had ever had in a franchise, <laughs> and it's been all downhill from there. They're messing pretty hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, honestly, I think that this is a good place to wrap it up. Um, so Let's wrap it up, baby. I want to thank you um, for coming on, and I want to just say uh, this is a this is some great great content and a great conversation. So thank you so much. I had fun. Hopefully uh, you did too, and hopefully I didn't ramble too much. Ah, oh, no, man. I love rambling. And I think that if you're listening to a podcast about with two people talking, that's what you're expecting. Yeah, that when you're on the bus and you can't escape, might as well listen to two dudes talking about stuff. Right, right. All right. Thank you for joining us this week. Superb Owl releases every Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on all major podcast networks, aside from Apple. I am honestly still working on that. Thank you for joining us today. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.